I love coming to church. There's something special when God's people get together. When we get to sing, we get to worship, we get to lift up His name. Uh, for me, it's the most amazing thing. I would rather be at church than at work. <laughs> really, I would. Uh, there's just the atmosphere of faith, the atmosphere of fellowship. is just you can't reproduce it anywhere else. So, uh, so good to be together. So, let me read. Uh, we're in the book of Ephesians, making our way through. We're kind of going through one chapter over two weeks, and today we're in the second part of chapter 5. So I want to read the first verse of our text today, Ephesians 5, 21, uh, and then I think we need to pray for ourselves before we read the next, the next part of it. <laughs> this is serious stuff. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul makes this general statement about submitting to one another because of our submission to Jesus, and then he goes on from here all the way through to the middle of chapter 6. He goes through some specifics and details of how that works out in different kinds of relationships. So in the marriage context, he speaks to wives and husbands, to uh, children and parents, to um, slaves and slave owners. So we're going to go through the, the rest of chapter 5 today. And by pure coincidence, or maybe it's God incidence, it's about marriage. And on Tuesday and Wednesday night, we're going to be looking at marriage. Honestly, we did not try and set it up that way, but God might be wanting to get our attention. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing thing called marriage. And Lord, I pray as we look at it a little bit, as we scratch the surface, Father, would you bring understanding and revelation and liberty and freedom this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read the rest. Brace yourselves. This is the good part. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you should, must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Yo, you're all wanting to see what direction I'm taking on this one, hey? Yo, sheesh. Please do not record this sermon. <laughs> I'm joking. Marriage is the closest, deepest, most intimate human relationship we can have on planet Earth. It is unique. I've got three kids. 
if you have kids, you probably love them and adore them. They're the apple of your eye. But parenting is a journey of increasing independence. I don't want to be brushing my kids' teeth and changing their clothes when they're 20. There's independence. We should still have a good relationship. We should still love each other. But I want them to become independent of me in all of those things. But marriage is a journey of getting closer the longer you're married. It's a journey of increasing unity, increasing intimacy, increasing friendship. Over years, we should be closer and closer together, right? It's a unique and amazing thing. Now, Paul, who writes this letter to the church of Ephesus, he wasn't married. So I don't know how qualified he is to give marriage advice, but at least he's not got no bad experiences, right? You can just take what God is saying and say it to us. So that's, maybe that's a good thing. But there are some scriptures that Paul wrote in other books where he promoted singleness. Don't nod, you married, but. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Maybe you and your wife need some marriage counseling. I don't know. Just come on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. But Paul was single, he wasn't married. And he said, actually, if you're single, if you have this gift like he did, actually you've got more time and more freedom and more energy to serve God than if you were married and had responsibilities and kids and a house and lawn and a swimming pool and pets and DIY and all that stuff. And Paul's not saying that those things are wrong. He's just acknowledging that they're present and they're legitimate draws on our time and our energy and our finances. Marriage needs, not Roman, <laughs> marriage needs investment. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so before we talk about marriage, a few points to those who are not yet married today. Because you might be looking at marriage and saying, I can't wait to get married, I hope it's soon. Mandela is shaking his head. Mandela probably has a long bucket list. Before I get married, I want to do all these things. You might hope that's in years to come. Wherever you are on the thing of marriage, you probably want to maximize your time before you get married, however short or long that is, yeah? So how can you do that to make the most of the time of being single? Well, firstly, carpe diem. Seize the day, make the most of every day, be present in every day, live it to the max. I've met some people in years gone by where they are longing for to get married, can't wait, my spouse will completely complete me, they are my better half, it's going to be amazing, and they, they forget to live out today, because they're so living in the future that hasn't yet arrived, they miss out. And the problem with that is not just that you miss what God has for you today, but you end up idolizing marriage and idolizing your spouse. Now, an idol is a false god. It's a functional savior. And so you, when I get married, life will be better. It'll, all this stuff will be gone and it'll be bliss, bed of roses. And so marriage or your spouse is a savior that rescues you from the hell of your singleness. It's so horrible being single. Look how much fun the married people are having. And so you make marriage an idol, or our spouse an idol. And the problem with that is that God should be number one, but when we do get married and we've made marriage or our spouse an idol, 
they cannot save you from your hell. Only God can. And so you're going to have a disappointing marriage. It's going to fall apart because you've made someone else your God. So seize the day. Don't miss out what God has for you now. Secondly, press into God. Pursue Him. Chase after Him. You've got time and energy. You might not have lots of money because you might have just started working, but you've got time and energy. Get involved in 10 different serving teams. Go on mission trips. Go overseas. Do a year of your life, whatever, but run after God. The year after I became a Christian, I was still single. Maybe not so happily single, but I was still single. I went on five different mission trips. The UK, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Lesotho, and Kokstadt. I grew so much in my faith that year, simply because I like God's whatever, I'm doing it, I'm involved, I'm there. And luckily I could take that time off, I was studying at university. But, but do some wild things for God while you're young and not tied down. It's not wrong to be tied down, it's just different. Hey? If you're not so young, yes. And, you, and you're not married, you also have free time. You might have more money as well. <laughs> Thirdly, work on yourself. Sort out the stuff, the character flaws, the sin that's inside, and put into practice good habits so that when you are married and life changes drastically or when kids come and the world turns upside down, your habits, the good ones, are there. Like exercise and good eating and having a quiet time, a devotional time where you learn how to hear God's voice, learn how to pray, learn how to read the Bible, put those habits in place, they will stand you in good stead when you are married. Good financial habits like tithing, paying off your debt, saving, being generous. Better to get victory in all these things before you're married than to have to drag your spouse through the mess of you trying to clean up your stuff when you're married. Deal with your fears, your insecurities, your anger, your stinginess, your lusts, whatever it might be, your father issues, your mother issues, get healed. Walk in freedom. It's the best gift you can give your future spouse. Free, whole, healed, in love with Jesus, seeking first the kingdom. The best gift you can give your spouse if you're single. And then lastly, for those not yet married, pray for your future spouse. Pray for them. I remember praying for my future spouse for months and months and months. Like, honestly, I prayed a lot. I said, Lord, I want the perfect woman. Let me tell you what she looks like. And they were like spiritual stuff. Don't judge me. There was a list that I prayed. It was like, Lord, she must hear your voice. She must be prophetic. She must love people and want to be involved in their lives. She's got to have a heart for others. She's got to love missions and, and going to the nations. Uh, there was spiritual stuff I prayed for, I promise you. Maybe one or two that were not so spiritual. <laughs> but I remember praying for months and months, years, and uh, there were two or three girls in the church that I was part of that seemed to meet all the criteria. Boy, which one should I choose? And within a few months, like they were all dating other guys. And my, like my heart was wrecked, it was broken. For an introvert who's not used to all this feeling stuff, I was like, 
I was a mess. I was like in tears before the Lord, trying to figure out, am I ever going to get married? I feel like God challenged me one day and said, Glenn, you're not praying the right way. Okay, Lord, well, what, how should I pray? Well, don't you think I would be better at choosing your spouse than you? Oh, yeah, you know a whole lot more. God knows how I'm wired and my personality way better than I do. He knows the best match for me for the long term. So surely God should pick. So I'm like, I, started, I changed how I prayed. I had to change my paradigm of thinking, say, Lord, I, I want your perfect wife for me. And as I started to pray and my heart started to change, there was like this peace that came. And I could just release that thing to God. I kept praying, but Lord, I want your best. And as that thought sunk into my head one night, I remember thinking, wow, God is going to give me the perfect woman. I'm going to be so blessed. Thank you, Jesus. I trust you. Put my faith in you. Didn't run off the woman anymore. But then I realized that some woman is praying to God, Lord, give me the perfect husband. And God would use me to answer her prayer. Boy, was that a reality check, because I was far from perfect. <laughs> to the point before, I had to start working on my stuff. Think of that if you're not yet married. You are the answer to someone's prayer. Lord, give me the perfect husband or the perfect wife. Oh, that should make us sort out our stuff, eh? So that's for those not yet married. Don't dial out now. The other stuff's also good. So let's take Paul's or this bit of Ephesians 5 in two chunks, Paul's uh, instruction to wives and then his instruction to the husbands. So to the wives, he says this, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So Paul says, don't submit to every man on planet earth. It's not a universal command for women to submit to all men. It's a context-specific command. In marriage, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. That word head is translated most often ruler. It has the implication of authority. Sometimes it's translated source. It seems likely that Paul's using it more with authority because he uses the word submit quite a lot in this passage. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In my Bible, that's underlined. <laughs> joking, I'm joking. Oi. <laughs> Guys, these are very strong statements. Very strong, very direct. People have tried to interpret them other ways. It's quite plain and clear. You can't exegete this and make it mean something else. It's, it's quite clear in the Bible. They make us feel uncomfortable. We kind of think, well, is Paul or God stuck in the past? Is they stuck in a society from 2,000 years ago trying to copy and paste from how they lived then and just trying to replicate it today? That's maybe how you're feeling. We have to understand the context that Paul's writing into, that he's living into. He's writing to a society and a culture that is very patriarchal. Male-dominated. Women were treated as property. They weren't really educated. They didn't get to study or learn. They were inferior. They weren't important. They were basically there to raise kids. And if you read the Old Testament and the times around Jesus, horrendous things were done to women by men. It's, it's embarrassing to read parts of the Bible 
and to see that's in the Bible because of how men treated women. So the context that Paul's in and he's writing to is that, okay? So keep that in mind. Our society hasn't been that much different until about 60 years ago when the women's liberation movement came in and we're all living in the fruit of that 50, 60, 70 years later where it's accepted and understood and known that women are equal to men, equal in value, in dignity, in worth, in ability, in gifting, in intelligence. For us, that's a norm. But for thousands of years, it hasn't been. So this thing that we're living in, that women can do as much as men, and they're equal in every way in God's eyes, is a new thing in the history of the world, right? Me, uh, women can do a whole lot of things way better than men. If you're married, you will know this is true. <laughs> no, one, no one heard that, Gabriel. <laughs> there are some things that only women can do, like find the missing sock. <laughs> I mean, like, really. And having babies and things like that. So, so men and women are equal before God. We may, <laughs> it wasn't planned to be a joke, but okay. Men and women are equal before God. He, we made in His image, both of us, called to rule and multiply and dominate the earth, etc. But we're also different. Genetically, we're different. Women have two X chromosomes. Men have an X and a Y. There's a genetic difference. There's a physical difference. The bodies are different. They just are. We are hormonally different, and all of these differences, and there are more of them, are good, and we celebrate them, and we're glad for them. So keeping all those in mind, even though the context is very male-dominated that Paul's writing into, if you look throughout the New Testament, you find over and over Jesus and Paul and others being very countercultural, very pro-woman. So we have to read those instructions in Ephesians 5 in light of these other ones. Just give you a quick few examples. Jesus had woman disciples. Mary and Martha, Mary sat at his feet. She was a disciple. No other rabbis did that. Scandal. Go Jesus. <laughs> Go Jesus. You know who the first witness was to the resurrection? Was a woman. Do you know why that's amazing? If you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus, you can nullify Christianity. It hangs on the resurrection of Christ. Women at that time were not considered reliable witnesses. They weren't, their testimony wasn't credible, was not credible. So why would Jesus entrust that vital first witness to a woman? Because he trusts women. That's how he sees them. Jesus in John chapter 3 spoke to a Samaritan woman. Now, to speak to a woman wasn't the greatest thing you could do as a Jewish man. To speak to a Gentile woman who was a Samaritan, your enemy, and who had a very shady past. Like when the disciples came back from getting lunch, they were like gobsmacked. What are you doing talking to this dodgy woman from Samaria? And yet Jesus engaged with her, shows her that he values her, that she's got dignity and worth despite her past as terrible as it was, she goes into town. She's the first evangelist in the Bible. 
She says, come and hear a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Dozens come, hundreds get saved. It's a woman. Jesus defended the woman caught in the act of adultery. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. Jesus shows her grace, forgiveness. He says to her, where are your accusers gone? She's like, they're all gone. Well, I don't accuse you either. How's that? Grace. But he says to her, go and sin no more. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't condone our sin. He forgives it, but he says, go and sin no more. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he writes to this church, and in a time where only men did the divorcing for whatever reason, they could, you could be very frivolous with your reason, Paul writes to the church and says, woman, you can divorce your husband if, and there's some very specifics there, so woman, don't take this out of context, go and read 1 Corinthians 7, but how's that? Paul gives woman the power and the right, if needed, the circumstances are extreme to get out of marriage. Normally, they could never do that. So, so we see in the Bible some strong instructions, and we see a very pro-woman Jesus and Paul and others. And so we can't take Ephesians 5 to be meaning that God is telling women they're inferior in any way that they're subservient, that they're second class, that they're lower, whatever. He's not putting women down. We also can't take what the prevailing culture says about marriage or about any other part of life. We can't, at the expense of God's word and his truth, say, ah, oh, the Bible's old-fashioned, we, we're modern, we can just do what we want. It's a recipe for disaster because God has patterns in his word for every part of our life, not just marriage. So then how are we to understand Paul's words? Well, I think one thing is for sure, how we see the words headship and submission is often very tainted, very negative. We have the view of if someone's in submission, they're inferior. That's just our natural thinking and we have to renew our minds. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, was at Westminster Cathedral for many years. He said this, commenting on the passage, this is what it means. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands because it's part of your duty to the Lord, because it's an expression of your submission to Jesus. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Do it in this way as part of your submission to the Lord. In other words, when the wife submits to the husband, She's doing it primarily for Jesus' sake, not for the husband's sake. So the Bible also says in the context of a local church that those in the church should obey, should submit to the leaders, the elders. God has delegated authority to the elders, to pastor, to shepherd, to take care of, to train everyone in the church. And we're comfortable with that submission, aren't we? If you're not... Go read the Bible, I can give you some scriptures. So we're comfortable with that kind of submission. We're also called in Romans 13 to obey the government, to follow the laws of the land, to pay our taxes and not to speed and not to kill people and rob and all that stuff, civil society. God says we need to obey them. And we're comfortable with that submission, right? Many of us 
chose to wear masks, chose to social distance, chose to not go and visit our friends and family during different lockdowns, even though we might not have agreed with the science or whatever was happening being said, because we're obeying Jesus to obey our authorities. So we're comfortable with this kind of submission as part of our obedience to Christ. I submit to my boss's decisions. I work for a company, agricultural company, and because he has delegated authority in that context, in the workplace, I submit to him. Most of the time he's right, sometimes he's not right, and he will admit it, I hope. Uh, but I submit to him, and I try my best to do it joyfully, to do it so that it's easy for him to lead, easy for him to feel supported, and he in turn has helped me in my role with my team immensely. We have an incredible working relationship. I submit to him. He leads the, the department I'm in. But I'm, we're comfortable with submission. But somehow when it comes to marriage, we're like, oh, this doesn't feel right. But I think it's how we understand the words maybe. So he says to husbands, in this specific context of marriage, this mystery of two becoming one. I don't get that. In this microcosm of Jesus and the church, God has delegated authority for the husband to be the team leader, to be the captain. Not to be the dictator who calls the shots and tells everyone or tells the wife what she should do and when and how quickly, etc., but to do it sacrificially. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, Ephesians from 22. The husband provides leadership to his wife in the way that Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. Husbands, can you say that your leading of your wife is in a cherishing way? So just as the church submits to Christ, as he exercises such cherishing leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, Go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. You know, the best marriage is when both spouses are trying to outdo the other in giving. Love, affection, time, generosity, helpful words. You try and outdo each other. <laughs> I saw that, but... Your wife's and kids' ministry, you know, you can send her the notes. <laughs> if, you can out, if you can compete in a healthy way with your spouse to outgive each other in showing love and outgive each other in forgiving, because none of us are perfect, you can have an amazing marriage. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole, his words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Husbands, can we say that our words evoke beauty in our wife, that our words make her whole, that everything we do and say is designed to bring the best out of her? Can we say that? Yo, that's challenging. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. In other words, if the wife is flourishing, if she's flying, if she's becoming whole, she's living in fullness, if she's radiant and more beautiful and more holy, then the husband's accomplishing his role. 
and serving her well. I heard a story once of a pastor who was, who was counseling a man, and they'd be married for 10 or 12 years, husband and wife, and they, they come in together, and the man is like, this is not the woman I married. On my wedding day, she was an angel, and now she's a witch. I can't believe how much she's changed. Like, he was just like spouting forth all this stuff. So the pastor asks, what's the only thing that's changed between when you married her and now? The man is silent. And the pastor says, she married you. The only difference is you. You have made her like this. And friends, that's true in quite a few senses. How we love our spouse, be it husband or wife, what they turn into is a reflection of how we've loved them. This is what the Bible says. Submission to the wives is not required if there's sin. If he's asking you to do something ungodly or there's abuse, submission's not required. And submission is not only when you agree with your husband. Ah, he's got the right idea, I'm going to submit because I want that idea too. That's not submission, that's just making a decision together, <laughs> okay? For Candace and I, probably 99 point something percent of the time, we're on the same page. When we have to make a decision, we talk about it. There's toing and froing, there's arm wrestling, there's new ideas, there's Google, there's phone a friend, there's like, but most of the time, honestly, we, we end up making and agreeing on what we're gonna do. I'm so grateful that she's got all the good ideas and I just, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> Occasionally, and I honestly can't think of a specific example, but every now and then where there's something we don't agree on, Okay, the one or the point something percent. Then submission means that the husband should take the decision. But I want to just tease and seize that with this point, that if you're not agreeing on a decision because you're just being stubborn, that's a bad way to not agree, right? Because you're being selfish, because last time you went with his idea, now you want your idea. Like, that's no way to, to lead a home. Okay, being petty. If for whatever reason there's just no agreement on a decision, it's the husband's role to kind of be the tiebreaker possibly, to make the decision knowing God's delegated that authority and that me as the husband, as the team captain, I'm going to stand accountable to God. So I better not just make my own decision what I think is good, but I should be weighing it up and praying, God, what do you want? I might decide to go with what I think I might decide to go with what Candace thinks, okay? But I've got to make the decision where there's no agreement. And honestly, that is by far the minority of cases. But I know that every marriage is different. Every personality is different and how it works out looks different. So, so don't copy and paste how we do things, if that makes sense. But can I say that it's easy for me to serve Candace and lay my life down. And it's easy for Candace to submit because both of us, our primary goal is God. Seek first the kingdom. I don't care whether I get my way 10 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 or 0 out of 10. I want God's best for my marriage, for my family, for whatever we're deciding. And so because we're both seeking God and both asking for wisdom and praying, Lord, guide us. It doesn't matter who's right 
or what the decision is, Lord, is it in line with you? And I think that is a vital key for a healthy marriage. Seek first the kingdom. Because you're not worried whose who's decision was the one taken. Submission is easy. Serving and laying our lives down for each other is easy when the focus is Christ and his kingdom. David Guzik is a Bible commentator. And uh, he, he wrote a little script, like a theoretical conversation between a husband and some other guy. I'm going to kind of quote it. The husband may say, well, I thought God said I was the head of the home. And this is David's reply, you are the head. Well, I thought my wife was supposed to obey me and submit. Well, she is supposed to submit to you. Well, then why do I have to lay my life down and sacrifice? Why do I have to humble myself and give away my high-minded reputation and be a servant? I thought I was in charge. And this is his reply. There's only one answer to this husband. You understand headship and submission in a very worldly way. You don't understand it in a godly way. See, worldly headship says this. I'm your head, so you must take orders and do whatever I tell you. That's worldly. That's not the picture the Bible paints. Godly headship says this. I'm your head, so I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to love you in a way that brings the best out of you because we're one. And if it's going good for you, it's going to go good for me. He who loves his wife is actually loving himself, Paul says. I'm going to refrain from commenting. And not in a condescending way. I must, I must look after you and love you and take care of you. Because we can't think, oh, women, they're the weaker sex. Shame, it's not fair on them. They, they were made second and not first in creation. And all these weird reasons. It's not in a condescending way. It's because in this marriage, this team, we are equal. And the plans and purposes for the Askoff household require both of us to be running after God together. So we have to understand headship as God sees it. We're equals. We can't fulfill God's call if I'm not serving and loving in a way Jesus would. We can't fulfill our call if she's not submitting as we all should submit to Christ. But I want to say how that's worked out looks different in every marriage. But for us, 99% of the time, is we're on the same page. And I'm so grateful. We've had very few real arguments. We're going to break bread now. You should have got some communion cups as you came in. If you didn't, there are a few at the back. Please grab one. Kaylees, if you could just 